Hello and welcome to the Big Ideas Into Action podcast from the World Resources Institute and to the second in a special series looking at just transition. There are plenty of winners when we shift to low carbon economies, but what happens to those that may be left behind? In this episode, we turn to Australia to find out the challenges thrown up when a coal power station shuts down. The big cost is not financing early retirements and redundancy schemes. Uh, The big cost is economic diversification. So where do we go in the future? It's hard. I mean, we've got another power station in your lawn. The closure date's been announced as 2028. But what do we do when that has to shut? Bringing together these stakeholders is so critically important. It can really provide the basis for a way forward to really make the transition work for workers and for local communities. Hello, I'm Nicholas Walton, and this is the second in a special WRI podcast mini-series looking at just transition and what happens to those whose lives, livelihoods and communities are left behind as we shift towards renewable energy. In this case study, we're looking at the negotiations that accompanied the closing of a coal-fired power station in Australia. We're doing quite a bit on Just Transition, including a special resource section of our website where you can find out much, much more. Go to wri.org slash just dash transitions. This series will include an overall podcast looking at the wider Just Transition issues and three case studies. So now back to this case study, which is in Australia and regards the closing of a coal-fired power station. Here's my colleague from WRI's climate program, Molly Bergen. As a major producer of coal and liquefied natural gas, Australia has one of the dirtiest fossil fuel footprints per capita. The country still burns coal to generate most of its electricity, which is unusual for a rich nation. And it also remains the world's second largest coal exporter after Indonesia. This despite the global need to stop burning fossil fuels as soon as possible to prevent the most dangerous impacts of climate change. Yet as renewable energy prices continue to drop, fossil fuels are less able to compete and more coal plants are closing. Among them is the Hazelwood Coal Plant in Southeast Australia's Latrobe Valley. Built in the 60s, Hazelwood once provided about a quarter of the electricity for the state of Victoria. Then, in November 2016, workers were told it would shut down completely in just five months. So we didn't really have a clue because the company was saying we're going to run until 2032, I think. Basically, an SMS was how I found out. Uh, along with everyone else. Um, the SMS was, you know, turn up to a meeting, we've got an announcement, um, first time ever. It's pretty obvious what it was. Mark Richards was a unit controller at Hazelwood who lost his job when the plant closed. Unfortunately, I was on the last night shift there and uh, we walked out the gate the following morning, which was April Fool's Day. Many workers expected a phased closure where the plant would close a few of its power generating units at once and give workers more time to find new jobs. Instead, they were left in the lurch with only a few months' notice. So most of the older workers at Hayeswood, they didn't want to work again or learn a new power station because it's quite a technical field. They'd be quite happy to leave a year or two early. Only about a year before the closure notification, um, I'd worked with the union to negotiate a redundancy package. And uh, we essentially managed to negotiate four weeks' pay for each year of service, but it was capped at two years' pay. So most of the older people were quite good about it. They weren't really disadvantaged. Obviously, if you were young, it was devastating. You know, they, they just bought a house, they um, bought a car, being told by the company when they're hired, 2030 and beyond, and uh, they're closing in 2017. So that throws a lot of things up in the air. 
The state government of Victoria set up a series of so-called social dialogues with the power station companies in the area and Australia's Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union. Here's Tony Meyer, the general president of the Mining and Energy Division of that union. So we had to scramble to get government assistance to stimulate the local economy, but we needed something for the immediate workforce. So that's why we proposed a worker transfer scheme where jobs would be freed up at the neighbouring power stations and mines by either early retirement or voluntary redundancy. At the time, there were three other large power stations in the Latrobe Valley. By allowing older workers there to take early retirement with generous compensation packages, enough jobs opened up to hire about 90 of the younger workers who had lost jobs at Hazelwood. This was the first time this type of thing had been done in Australia. Two years after Hazelwood closed, 74% of its former employees were listed as employed or otherwise not looking for work, including because of retirement. Of course, in an ideal world, every single worker affected would have been allowed to either transfer to a new job or retire early with benefits. Here's Mark Richards again. The failing was that the company could have taken a lot more and the company could have released a lot more older people. And I'd say the reason we didn't get more, more of those changeovers is the government didn't have enough teeth in any deal. Besides the worker transfer scheme, the federal and state governments also pledged more than $230 million U.S. million in financial support for things like training workers in new skills and diversifying the economy in Morwell, the town closest to the plant. But so far, these community benefits have been slow to materialize. The big cost is not you know, financing early retirements and redundancy schemes. Uh, the big cost is economic diversification. Uh, I don't think there's any substantial diversification yet. Uh, government programs, they often put millions of dollars into infrastructure projects, which take a long time to get going. And, they, you know, they tend to be construction jobs, which last as long as the construction projects. But you need a framework plan for each region um, and you need community involvement in that. And you need to accept it's going to cost a lot of money. Once they lose their big power stations and big mines, that's an enormous slice of the income to the communities and something needs to replace that. But it's something in these times of pandemic that we have to do anyway. Everyone's looked at their supply chains and thought we're overly reliant on products produced elsewhere. So there's going to have to be multi-billion dollar investment in manufacturing, well, we'll solve two problems for the price of one. And the planning has to start now. Tony sees Germany as a worthy model for Australia to follow when it comes to transitioning away from coal. If you look at the, you know, the gold standard of transition, the German coal mining industry, they invested billions of euros to diversify the economies. They went into the chemical industry, in the steel industry, in the airline industry, and they planned for new sectors in those regions. And people believed those jobs were real because they could see them. And the other thing they did right in Germany was that if you needed some extra training, you did it before you got the sack. So you were released for training, which is a long way away from what happens in the English-speaking world. We've got a lot of work to do. The difference is Germany's got a system of shared responsibility. A problem like this is seen as a shared problem. It's not seen as the union's problem or the workers' problem or the community's problem. It's seen as the problem of government, the problem of business, whereas... In other parts of the world, it's, well, this industry's closing, you're on your own, see you later. 
in the past, you haven't loved the terms just transition or green jobs. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about that. Yeah, well, we road tested those terms with workers. And basically, they look at you quizzically and say, well, just transition, we've never seen any. Usually, when things transition, we go out the back door and have to find a job. So it's sort of like they'll believe it when they see it. And I think that's an entirely reasonable attitude, frankly. You're listening to a special WRI podcast miniseries looking at the issue of just transition. Now back to Molly Bergen. The experience at Hazelwood has revealed just how important it is to get the timing right in order to adequately support workers through the plant closure and transition to new jobs. Here's Mark Richards again. So one of the biggest things that absolutely has to be done is you can't make a new industry to replace one you're killing off before that happens. You have to prep it, but you can't have it open before the other one shuts down. Otherwise, all you do is you get new employees and the employees getting shut down don't get a job. It's about timing. Another challenge is that as the number of fossil fuel power stations shrinks, so does the opportunity to move workers to other plants. So what happens then? So where do we go in the future? It's hard. I mean, we've got another power station in your lawn. The closure date's been announced as 2028. But what do we do when that has to shut? You can't just transfer people to you know, the last two remaining power stations. It'll, sooner or later, that process dries up. Fortunately, other plants seem to be learning some of these lessons, and the union continues to play a central role in this process. Beyond Hazelwood, we've negotiated with AGL, the owners of the Liddell power station in the Hunter Valley. Uh, they gave us seven years' notice, and we've negotiated a deal where there'll be no forced retrenchments. Everyone will be found a job at a neighbouring station that they own or at the uh, Liddell site, which they will convert into solar, wind, pumped hydro, a small gas backup. And so there'll be some jobs there and they'll retrain people for that. So it's dependent on basically a deal between the company and the union. These days, Mark works with Tony at the Mining and Energy Union and remains committed to helping workers find a new place for themselves in a changing economy where they feel valued. I have 40 solar panels on my roof. So I understand climate change is real. I think pretty much all of our workers do. We don't begrudge that at all. We just believe that if we're going to lose our job after providing cheap electricity for 100 years in our industry, that we should at least not become the collateral damage. We should be looked after. You know, if you go to another job on a wind farm, for example, it pays less than a third the wage of what you did in the previous job, and it's nowhere near as technical or as interesting. But having said that, if that was the job and it kept me in my local area, my local footy team and sports clubs, well, I think I'd take it. But what it needs is that payment topped up. So, you know, my lifestyle doesn't change and the community doesn't get shortchanged over the whole process. As renewable energy prices continue to drop and make coal power less profitable, more coal plants in Australia are opting to move up their closure dates. And while this is great news for reducing carbon emissions, that won't be something we should expect workers to celebrate if they aren't taken care of through the process. We asked David Waskow, who leads WRI's International Climate Initiative, for some parting thoughts on what we can learn from the Hazelwood closure. Unions pressed on the question of how to address the impacts on workers due to the closing of a coal-fired power station. And what emerged over time was a social dialogue among the government, the power station company, and, and unions. And while it may not have been perfect, it did provide the opportunity for 
a constructive set of solutions to the situation there. And that included developing a set of training programs and and also actually local economic programs, such as for energy efficiency. This involved the company, the power station company. And so it really does provide an example. And we've seen it elsewhere with Enel in Italy, for example, of the private sector actually engaging and participating to develop training programs and other support for workers, local economic community development, and so forth. And and so bringing together these stakeholders is so critically important. It can really provide the basis for a way forward to really make the transition work for workers and for local communities. It also takes work to really follow through. I think that's one of the questions that needs to be addressed in the Australia case is that there's follow through that needs to happen as well. Funding needs to flow. The programs need to be put in place. And so getting the various actors together is critical, but but so is making sure that there's real implementation of what has been agreed. And that was David Waskell from WRI's climate team ending this second episode in our podcast mini-series on just transitions with reporting from my colleague Molly Bergen. We'll be collecting these podcasts from Molly in a resource section at wri.org slash just-transitions. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. <laughs>